Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, February 18th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we check in on the legislature, then an update on medical marijuana and the black church and the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Some state employees may qualify for another pay raise as Mississippi aims to be more competitive with neighboring states and private companies. MPB's Kobe Vance reports. Senate lawmakers have passed several appropriations bills that would adjust funding to many state agencies and the pay of some state employees. Last year, the State Personnel Board began the process of reassessing the state's compensation plan, and each appropriations bill included language that would comply with the new job classifications and pay ranges. Republican Senator Briggs Hobson chairs the Senate Appropriations Committee. There's a minimum, medium, maximum level. Every employee will be at least at the minimum level at the state. Some that are above that are frozen at their pay level. They're not going to come down, but they can certainly go up up to 10%, but they are going to be capped at the maximum level within that agency. If they're above that, they will stay at that level. Senator Hobson says those with salaries above the maximum could receive raises in the future depending on inflation. Before the final votes on appropriation bills, Democratic Senator David Blunt of Jackson says future plans to continue adjusting state budgets could be jeopardized by plans to remove the state income tax. He says the state has a healthier-than-average budget this year due to federal funding through the American Rescue Plan Act. Don't we know that this one-time money that we've received is not an excuse to eliminate recurring revenue year after year? That's what the House plan would do. We don't need it. We need to do what's in this budget here today and pass it and send it to the House and look at these tax cuts plans in a responsible, long-range way. Several bills were passed that would allocate some of that federal funding and would help alleviate strain on the health care system as well as the state's infrastructure. Cubby Vance, MPB News. Coming up, the black church and the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Medical marijuana became legal in the state earlier this month with a stroke of the governor's pen. For cannabis advocates, that new law represents the culmination of years of work to establish a medical program in Mississippi. But plenty of work still remains. That's according to Ken Newberger, who's executive director of the Mississippi Medical Marijuana Association. We have worked tirelessly tirelessly to ensure that we have a free market system, and we are now looking at making sure that this program comes online in a way that is safe, effective, and vibrant for the state of Mississippi. The governor signed the bill making medical marijuana legal, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. Your thoughts on being able to move this project forward, I know, There has been a lot of controversy and there's been setbacks and um, good signs. It was moving forward. It's been a lot of back and forth, kind of like a roller coaster ride. It has been a roller coaster. I've been working on this for uh, almost four years now. Um, It's been exciting to see the people of Mississippi come together through the Initiative 65 campaign, gathering signatures overcoming adversity through that. But then it's also been very exciting, even though the Supreme Court overturned the initiative back in uh, May of last year, seeing our legislators come together to honor the will of the people and also really immerse themselves in how to craft a good medical marijuana program. Um, Senator Blackwell, who authored the bill, and Representative Yancey, who really took the, the reins in the House, they both made it a point to learn the best concepts from other states and put into the bill here. So it's been a really big team effort over the past few years. And I guess with 74% of voters saying that they support a medical marijuana program, the will of the people had to be listened to by legislators and move it forward. Yes. Anytime 74% of the people of this state speak in a, a way like that, uh, I think it's it sends a message to the legislature. And with nearly a 90% approval in the legislature, I think they heard it loud and clear. The Mississippi Health Department is going to operate this program, establish it, create rules and regulations. When do they have to have, do they have like a series of deadlines, I guess I should say? They really have two main deadlines. The first is 120 days after the bill passed. So that clock started about two weeks ago. They have to produce rules and regulations for the program. Um, June 3rd is the end of that period. And then 30 days later on July 3rd is the, the end of when the first application that could have been reviewed needs to be licensed. So they have 30 days from when they receive an application to issue a license or or not issue a license and and communicate why a license wasn't issued. So um, the really two big dates that stick out are are 120 days after the bill was signed, which is June 3rd, and 150 days after the bill was signed, uh, which is July 3rd. Give us an, an example of what type of businesses will be needed to do the work. There are the seven license types enumerated in the bill. So those are definitely needed. You have cultivators, you have processors and manufacturers, you have dispensaries to, to sell the product to patients, you have testing facilities to make sure that the product is safe and effective, 
then you have um, disposal entities for any product that maybe doesn't pass testing and needs to be destroyed. You have transportation entities that would be handling the product very carefully. And then finally, you have research facilities. So those are the seven that are enumerated in the bill. And then you have businesses just like any other any other uh, industry in the, the country. You've got um, insurance businesses, legal services, accounting services, but also because this is an ag- agricultural product, you've got um, soil providers. Uh, because everything's going to be indoor, you're going to have a lot of people providing lights to to help grow the plant indoors. And you've also got uh, businesses that do point-of-sale software, um, peer-to-peer marketing. I mean, it really is a, an expansive industry when you start looking at all the ancillary businesses as well. Any idea how many jobs this might create? You know, I, we don't know yet. I, I know that for a grow facility, let's let's say the grow facility is, has about 10,000 square feet of canopy, which is the, the area in which you will be growing medical cannabis. Um, that size facility typically employs somewhere between 40 and 60 uh, people. And, and we're talking about some some larger amount of of canopy space for some companies. So that would be even greater. So we're, we're talking a couple thousand jobs easily. Uh, I don't know anything more than that. And I'm thinking about for the growers, and I guess all along the pipeline, security is going to really be a serious issue because you if you have working um, people working in the growing sector and they want to partake of the product and sell it maybe to the side or whatever, just take it and smoke it or whatever, there needs to be really some serious security in place. Absolutely. That's been a big problem in other states where there's been a lot of product that's been sent out the, the back door. And that's part of why the destruction license was created, was to help curb against that, uh, requiring a, a state-of-the-art seed-to-sale software um, so everything is tracked from when it is planted into the ground until it is sold to a, to, to a patient. Um, that's going to help cur- curb against that. But we've seen in several other states that the security measures can get quite high to protect against exactly what you're talking about, either people who may be bad actors or more accurately, people who might be trying to get the product illegally from a, a dispensary or a, a growth facility. How will banking be handled because it's still uh, federally considered illegal? How will people handle the money piece? We're working on, on a couple solutions for that through the association. There, there are a few businesses in the United States that have solved that. They handle a lot of the legal reporting for banks, that they partner with state banks and, and handle those reports that must be sent to the, the federal government. But also, states where this has happened, um, a state-issued, a, state, a state-chartered bank usually comes to the forefront and says, we're not officially chartered by the federal government because we our charter comes from the, the state, um, and we can separate uh, funds and accounts for medical cannabis companies in a way that that is still acceptable as long as they're keeping everything above wa- water and reporting that to the feds. So we're working with a couple of banks in the, in the state to hopefully come up with that solution for people. Un- unfortunately, right now, banking is still an unknown. 
Ken Newberger is executive director of the Mississippi Medical Marijuana Association. Still ahead, the black church and the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Black Church is one of America's most storied and resilient institutions. It's withstood centuries of violence and oppression and birthed social movements that changed the course of history. But the COVID pandemic presented a unique challenge. Tanya Funches is a professor of public health at the University of Southern Mississippi. Her new research sheds new light on how black pastors in Mississippi weathered a crisis that stripped away the church's all-important power of congregation. The study that we did is titled the perceptions and lived experiences of African-American pastors. And this was at the onslaught of COVID-19 pandemic in Mississippi. So this study was dated in June of 2020 through July because we knew pastors were trying to determine how to actually still hold worship service, still be there for their congregants and still abide by CDC state guidelines as it relates to COVID, and particularly as COVID was continued to increase the prevalence of it in Mississippi. So are you talking about one month or June 2020 to July 21? So we started doing in-depth interviews in June of 2020 and stopped around December of 2020. So in that period of time, we interviewed 37 pastors across the state. We did in-depth interviews, one-on-one interviews. Uh, We had about 40 hours of recordings from pastors in the state. What were some of the commonalities? I understand that they had to respond to COVID restrictions. Yes. So they had to respond to COVID restrictions. And if you can recall, Desiree, at first, in March, it was asked that they stop worship service until we could come out. And when I say we, state government could come out with further guidelines or the governor could come out with other guidelines as to how the church could move. And so after that, um, then we went from these executive orders of reducing the number of people that could gather in public places. So this therefore impacted churches. And so with them trying to follow the guidelines, many of them had to shift from in-person service, church in the black community the way we know it, uh, in most communities, in the building, to actually doing either some type of online service, or many of them, several of them did outside service. But the commonality was most of them had to shift. And so they were relentless in trying to protect their congregants. So they had to shift to a format that protected them. Um, So they had to shift to online. So they either did that through, you know, they notified their congregation. They did it through text message. They had to act quick 
They had to make quick decisions to protect their congregants. So they gave those messages out to Facebook, YouTube, things of that nature. So they were relentless in making sure that they protect their congregants, at least the pastors in this study. But at the same time, they still wanted to hold some type of worship service because we know that the black church is the birthplace and the nurturing ground for major social, cultural, economic, education, and political things in the black community. So with them having to reduce in church not being able to go forth, that is the place people come for refuge and support and services and resources. So the church serve as a dual role in the black community. And they were being prohibited from providing those services, but at the same time understanding that they needed to protect their congregants, but they still wanted to be able to be of service and provide those things that traditionally that the black church provide for the community. Did you find that some still held services? In the 37 pastors that we interviewed, yes, some still held services. But I do want to say that the few that held services still in person, they did try to sanitize, um, make sure that they were socially distant. The ones that we interviewed, I can't speak for all. We only interviewed 37 pastors across the state. But we did interview pastors from diverse communities, urban or rural, and from northern, central, and southern states. But the ones that we interviewed self-reported that only a few still held service inside. Most of them did virtual service. Some of them did um, services outside, uh, but they still held worship service. But most of them transitioned online. And I do recall that during uh, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, that many of the cases reported by the health department, they said, were from gatherings at churches and funerals. What was the response to that? You're exactly right. So one of the things that they tried to do, and and understanding, because it was an eye-opener for us, we understand the role that the um, pastors play and the role that the church play. But they were grieving because normally we don't just bury our loved ones. They're the entire process. And so one of the ways that they responded to that was, you know, they tried to follow the guidelines as much as possible. Some of them in this study um you know, they would try to go to the funerals. They could, they would try to keep it 50. They would try to tell the families. They couldn't go to the hospitals. Some of them couldn't go to the funerals or even be there for loved ones. And they grieved that loss and grieved being able to, to be able to provide those type of services because that's traditionally what they are responsible for doing. Ultimately, what stands out about this study? I think what stands out about this study to me was that, you know, they were relentless. We come up with, they were relentless in their approaches. They still tried to do everything possible to be able to hold worship service in a traditional way, but keep their congregants safe. They were really concerned because when the numbers first come out, they were really concerned about their elderly population. They really understood the magnitude of chronic disease in the black community, and they knew that those with underlying conditions were more susceptible. Um, the other thing that stood out was they did adapt and adopt technology. Many of the churches said they knew it was time to integrate different types of technology. Some of them had. Some was more advanced. But some churches had not adopted any type of technology as it relates to doing online services through YouTube, Facebook. They didn't trust some of that. And some of them didn't have the uh, capacity and the equipment to do it. But they had to go out and do that to continue to have worship service. Because in 
many instances, the church itself didn't make the decision. The congregants were fear, fearful, and so they stopped coming to some of the services. So they had to try to find a way to stay connected. The other thing is that in times of crisis, they did know how to utilize internal strengths and social capital. So they really leaned on those healthcare ministries that had been established in their churches prior to this to help with those types of crises because they already had linkage to resources and services. The other thing I think was that they relied on organizations that put information out like the State Department of Health, CDC. They also leaned on organizations like the Food Network. They delivered food boxes. They delivered um hand sanitizer, um, they delivered a mask because they worked with these organizations utilizing their social capital. I think there were some unintended negative consequences, like they did not expect for it to be that last this long. They did not expect their members to be along in the hospital and some die, and they were not able to come. They did not expect to be able to, some said, one pastor said, we buried a mom and a daughter. In the same day, they did not expect the magnitude of deaths. And then some benefits, though, was one said, you know, now the organizations and the agencies found us. So the bureaucracy and the tape that people normally have to do and go through to fill out information to get unemployment, to get uh, stimulus checks, to get some of those things, the agencies found them. They did not have to go search for the agency, and this helped their congregants. Lastly, quickly, the vaccine wasn't out when you completed this study, right? It was not. As we started to fold our, um, close out our study, we started at the end to ask a few questions about the vaccine and if they would promote that with their congregation. We didn't get to ask this to all pastors because it wasn't out yet, but um, toward the end, there was talk about it, so we did get to ask a few of the pastors. Some One one pastor said he's closing his church and they're going to do it totally virtual until a vaccine comes. So he spoke in advance, not even knowing that that was going to be. And then another pastor, some of them said, you know, due to what has happened with the medical community, what has happened with research, they were reluctant to even promote something like that with their members. But it had not fully come out yet. University of Southern Mississippi Assistant Professor of Public Health, Dr. Tanya Funches, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. Oh, you're, you're more than welcome. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you Monday morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Have a good week weekend.